It is always good to be in the house of the Lord coming back together again. I, I, last week, we've been traveling for the last couple of weeks, but just to be back in the house and even, to, you know, to cap off on that song, hallelujah, as, as we know, it's the congregational praise. It's nothing like coming together and praising the Lord together. And so it's just really excited to be here with you guys. Again, my name is Dahadi Lewis. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited um, to continue in our series. You know, it's, you know, especially during the summertime. Summertime is one of those times when we got to remember to continue to pray for a variety of different people, our, you know, for all of our college students who are going back home. We want to make sure that we are constantly lifting them up in prayer for those college students that are coming back home. We want to pray for the moms and dads of those students that are coming back home. You know, but, um, but we are excited. I'm looking down at my daughter who's back from GSW. Um, no, but we just, we're excited. And, you know, and even this week is a special week because it's something that we've been doing. My family and I have been doing it for the last 16 years, but Blueprint has been doing it since the, I think the birth of Blueprint. We've sent off um, some kids to what we call Kids Across America, K-A-A. See, we know, we know a couple of people in here. And so I have a picture this morning for those of you, the brave souls who got up at 345 this morning and sent off these kids to Kids Across America, which is a Christian inner city camp that we have that um, we've been going to. Um, it's a sports camp, and we've been going to it for the last, really, since the birth of Blueprint, but, it, you know, explicitly, our family has been a major part. It was life-shaping and life-transforming for so many of us, and so we're just really excited to get together, create the synergy, all the kids, and just to get that picture was an act of God. So we want to <laughs> praise the Lord that he is still alive and active and moving. So... Honestly, it was a really good time, you know, this morning. I mean, there was, you know, parents were alert and, and people were up and, and, you know, getting ready. But what was interesting about this time, it had so much to do with kind of what we was preach, what we're preaching on actually today. You know, as I started reflecting on that time and reflecting on the message that we have today, one of the things that I recognize is how parents were interacting with their children right? Parents were interacting with their children. And as they were going, they were all coming on the bus, arriving at different times. You can tell coming out of the car, parents was, were giving their kids instructions, right? It's like, and you know, and you know, those instructions were like, don't behave, you know, act, act right, don't behave. You know, they was giving the instructions. I, I can imagine. And you know, I don't know if you do that. Like I people watch and sometimes I sit and as parents are walking up with their kids or what they're doing, I'm like, I'm imagining what they were saying you know, just the different things. But, there were, but I know that it was instructions about what to do on this trip. And in that instructions, they were talking, probably talking about, you know, you know if they were my kids, it's like, hey, you're a Lewis. Represent the Lewis family well, right? Don't, don't, don't be, don't get, don't, I don't want to hear that call, right? And then you're talking about brush your teeth, do the, you know, you give all the things, don't leave this and that, and you know, so you're giving instructions. But we also know as parents, if you have any children, that those instructions are not enough. Right. So as we gave them the instructions at the end, we gathered them together. And this is a picture that happened right after we prayed. We was just like, OK, we gave them instructions. So don't act right. Act, make sure you act right. And then after the instructions, he's like, this is not enough. Hey, y'all, let's get together and let's pray. Right. And so we gathered together and we prayed and we interceded for them. We was just praying God for their safety, for the bus driver, for all of the things, the road there. And then our kids, ultimately, we won't get a call. Right you know, from our kids. And so in there that we did, but what was, I love it, and this is kind of where it kind of ties into the message today, is that even after we got the instruction going into, you know, coming into the time, we was just like, I know you're not getting this instruction, let's pray. 
So we prayed for the children before they got on the bus and took this picture. But then after that, it was kind of like the parents broke up in, like, with their kids. And again, and they went from instruction to prayer to now exhortation. There's like, like, look here. <laughs> I've told you. I've instructed you. We prayed. Now let me exhort you in a way to say, man, walk in a manner that's worthy. That's ultimately. Now, those exact words might not have been said. But that's ultimately what they were saying. Walk in a manner that's worthy and befitting of our name. Right? We have instructed you. We have prayed for you. And now we are exhorting you. We want to make sure that, like, this, like, that you get that we have so that you can represent us well as you are going into this camp. And really, as I thought about that, that's exactly where we are in the book of Ephesians. We are in a, a time where there, like Paul has spent, we've said, we talk about being in him. And over the last three, first three chapters of the book, Paul has been giving them instruction. He says, listen, let me explain to you that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. God the Father, he, he chooses us, he adopts us. God the Son redeems us and unites us. God the Holy Spirit seals us and guarantees us. He gives us instruction because you got to realize that you were dead, but now he's made you alive, that we are his workmanship for those that are in him. We are his workmanship, God's masterpiece. So if God were to show off to anybody, if he had people to show off, what he would do is he'd show off, he'd just say, hey, look, at, look at my church. That would be the thing that he shows off. And he was just like, and guess what happened? What the world cannot proceed, they, what we see in the church. He says it's the manifold wisdom of God, where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, that, that the world is not able to do, that I was able to tear down the dividing wall in Christ. So now that there's neither Jew, there's no Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. Those who used to be far from God are now close to God. Those who were near to God, was raised in this, are now right connected with one another. And God has created this kind of, this thing, this masterpiece that he calls the church. And he's like, I understand that this is a new term for you. It's a mystery that has been hidden from all the ages and all the time past. And so Paul says in chapter three, he says, let me explain to you. Let me explain to you what this mystery is about. This is a mystery about God is showing off. He's doing his thing. And he kind of shows it in the church, right? And he says, we are a display, a tangible expression of the gospel. That we, we if people want to see the gospel, they just, they're hypothetically are supposed to come and look at the church. And they see the love that we have for us. But Paul, recognizing this in the same way we naturally know as parents, recognize this. He says, listen, I know that's not enough. So two times in the letter, he prays. Paul first goes in and he says, listen, I recognize I'm speaking these things. I know you guys are not going to get it. So let me pray. And I love what Kenny, what Kenny said last week. He was just like, there. Paul prays twice and both prayers had a different kind of emphasis. The first prayer was a prayer for enlightenment. Let me just give you instruction to enlighten you to kind of what's going on in the heavenly realms. Let me give you instruction to what's happening but then after he kind of goes in and talks about the mystery, he then prays again. He says, this time, let me pray for empowerment, right? I pray that you would understand the power that you have in Christ Jesus. 
So in the first one, he's like, let me enlighten you. And the next one is let me empower you to understand the riches, the strength, the hope that we have of those that are in him, that we are his workmanship. And the Bible tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so now he comes and after the second prayer, praying that God would strengthen them, Paul, who was already given instructions and he has already prayed for them, now he goes in and says, let me now exhort you. Let me exhort you. And we start off in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, and he gives us this verse that starts off with this concept of therefore. Therefore, you see, Paul recognizes that in the same way that we've been trying to demonstrate to you that if you were to look at the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians, there are only two imperatives, only two more kind of moral commands or things for us to do. The first three chapters of Ephesians is all about what Christ has done, what he has done. Right? So basically what Paul is saying to you and I, if there are things that are kind of messed up or if, there, if we're lacking kind of like not living the, the, the fruit-filled life or the life that God has called us to do, there's something misaligned in our understanding of the gospel. So he said, before I can get into any activities or any do's and don'ts, let me first re-preach to you the gospel of God. Right. And so in there, there's only two commands that he gives us in the first one. The first command was remember. He says, remember, that is our response is that that what we have to cultivate and we have to fight is that we remember. That's the reason why we go to church. That's the reason why we spend time with the Lord. That's the reason why we pray. That's the reason why today we're going to take communion. And because all of that is for us to remember. And as we remember, hopefully all of what God has been talking about, this wisdom that he's given us, all of the, the blessings that he's bestowed upon us, that we would remember that we will both be enlightened and will be strengthened or empowered by the gospel of God. That we would know. And so he says, he says, remember. Remember, and the second in instruction that he gives us, the only other command that he gives us in the first three chapters is remember, and then the second one is be encouraged. Be encouraged. I love the reality of the scriptures because some of us may believe, oh, well, God, you know, if God is in me, who can be against me? And we can deal with it, but there is someone who's against you. We are in a context that life is broken. We are all living in a world where we have to deal with things that we wish didn't happen to us. Right? We are in, in a context where we try, to, we try to make sense out of what's going on in life. And so on one end, he says, remember the gospel of God. But the other thing, he says, be encouraged. Because right now in the book of Ephesians, Paul is reminding them, he says, listen, I understand that I'm telling you to be encouraged and I'm telling you to remember in light of the fact that I'm in prison because of this gospel. That some of you guys, some of our other people have been in prison that people are, are, are struggling. There's beef between Jews and Gentiles. That it doesn't seem like that we keep preaching this gospel. We keep talking about how the church is not like family, but is family. But the reality is, is that oftentimes it doesn't feel that way. There's struggle. There's persecution. 
There's all types of things. And, and so Paul says, remember and be encouraged. Stay encouraged. Don't allow the current circumstances to bring you down. Stay encouraged. Stay empowered. And then he goes on and he prays that final prayer in chapter 3. And then he goes and now here we are. He gives us the call. And this is what the message is about today. The message is that he gives us an exhortation. And this exhortation is walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read the first few um, passages, first few um, paragraphs. We're going to go from 1 to 16. I'm going to break this up in sections. So I'm going to read to you the first six verses um, of chapter 6. Then we're going to look at 7 through 12. And then we're going to end in 12 through 16. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We are now in the therefore part of the scriptures. Right, right. If the first half is a, was a fancy word that they call orthodoxy, the second is orthopraxy. What do we do with it? And so he starts off and he says, therefore, I, Paul, referring to himself, am a prisoner in the Lord. Urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope uh, at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And so he goes and he says, therefore, and he says like he's given us instruction that what we're saying is for those that are in Christ, this is a message that he first says like this is a message that is centered towards those that are prisoners in the Lord. There may be some people in here right now that may be like, yeah, I've been around church, I've been around, but you know, I don't know necessarily that I'm a prisoner of God that I'm restricted to God's way of doing things, that it's not a by all, any means necessary on how do I live life, but it's a by all possible means. It's as if God has placed bumper rails, kind of like if we're bowling and he put bumper rails on both sides, that if when I roll the pin that I can't go too far to the left or too far to the right, that each one kind of makes me stay in the center, that God has said he has given us instruction. Paul is saying is that I have surrendered to your instruction. I've surrendered to you. It's not by my means, but it's by your means. And he says, as a prisoner in the Lord. And what Paul is basically saying, he says, therefore, in, in, the, in the therefore, he's saying, if, what is tr- if we really believe the first three chapters of Ephesians, there ought to be some type of response. Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. He now exhorts you. He says, I've given you instruction. I've prayed for you. Now I'm urging you. I'm exhorting you. Before you get on this metaphorical bus to go to KAA, I urge you. I exhort you. Walk in a manner that honors me, that honors the Lord. And Paul gives them this, this instruction. And so he goes in and it's that, that concept of walk in a manner that we see that word. Let's just say the word walk. The word walk, first it's mentioned seven times in the book of Ephesians. Six times is in chapter four and following, 
right? The only other time that it's mentioned is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it's a response out of the gospel. In Ephesians 2, 10, basically it says, for we are saved by grace, that is a gift of God, not of ourselves, so that no man could boast. He says, we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So therefore, basically, walk, do, Right? And so he gives us these instructions that this concept of walk that is mentioned right here is mentioned multiple times. And then Paul takes that imagery of saying the first three chapters is all about what God has been doing. And now as I get into the rest of it, it's our response to what he is doing. We don't respond because we're trying to earn God's favor. We respond because we have God's favor. Right? And so it is a response that he has. And so this concept of walk is a concept that Paul wants us to understand. And in that, the word walk is mentioned in what the Bible talks about it, or not the Bible, but it, it demonstrates it in the present active tense. What does that mean? That you don't just walk for a period, that you can point to a day and time where you were walking with God. But it says walk, it's like ongoing that we are constantly, presently asking God to walk, that the idea when Jesus says, come and follow me, and I will make you officials of men, this concept of walking is sort of like, is where we get the word peripateo, which basically means that as I'm walking around, follow me. And so the Bible is already, for those that are in Christ, is already kind of wrestled with things, and they're always like, there's no such thing as an unbel- or a believer or somebody that's in him that refuses to follow him. Because the question is like, where are we walking? Where are we walking? Where Jesus is calling us to walk. And he says, walk in a manner that's worthy, right? And that word, and so we talk about the word walk mentioned, and we're going to pick that up throughout the rest of um, our time in the book of Ephesians. But that, that phrase, to walk in a manner, is, is mentioned multiple times throughout the New Testament, Right? And, and that in, in there, all the way from John, 3 John 1 6, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, right? Philippians 1 27, he says, This one thing I want you as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We see it here in Ephesians. But, but you see, what he is saying, he's not saying live your life to earn something, he's saying live your life in light of something. Right? He says in Colossians chapter 1 and 10, he says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Right? That we are the aroma of Christ. That we are walking in response to him. Because if you understand this, like the Bible has already made it clear of how do we actually please the Father. Hebrews chapter 11 and 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in him is the only bridge to which we can please the Father. We put all of our confidence, not in our activities, not in our works, but in him. So all of these things that we're about to do, we don't, we're not supposed to switch it now to kind of uh, like we get saved by grace, but we keep it by the law. Right? We're not like, we don't try to strap on now to pull your boots up by your um, self bootstraps. Pull yourself by your bootstraps. We are saying basically in light of this grace, this gospel, Christ's work, we are now to respond to that and we walk in a manner that's pleasing to him. Why? Because we believe 
we believe in the grace of God. That if I were to die and stand before a holy and a perfect God today, I wouldn't tell God anything about what I've done. I wouldn't tell because I passed it. I tried my best. I wouldn't give any of my resume of why he should let me into heaven. The only thing that I would say is because I have trusted in your son. I put all of my confidence in him. And if he wasn't good enough, then I'm, I'm lost that I put my confidence in him. And so Paul, is, all of that's wrapped up in this idea of walk worthy of the manner. Because some of us are doers and some of us are functional legalists, right? We're like, all right, we get into the good part now. We get into the part where, you know, where all these lazy people are going, that ain't really following the Lord, are going, you know, we're going, they're going to be exposed now. You see, it's the whole Mary and Martha thing, right? Mary's sitting at the feet and Martha's like, Jesus, what is, what? You ain't going to say nothing about this? No, Jesus like, no, you've chosen. Mary has put in her trust in me. And so when he tells us to walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, we're recognizing that the only way that we can please the Lord is by trusting, trusting him. And so he, he calls us to this, this concept of trust. And he says, trust me. Trust me, right? You have been called. You have received. And, he, and he's basically saying, I want to, and how do I know he's saying this? Because you have been called. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have, what? Received. Not that you've performed, you've acted up, you've made the right decision. You've just received. We are on the receptive reception end of God's mercy of God's grace, what we have received. And so basically what he's telling us is that when we walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, that means to bring one's conduct in harmony with one's calling. Or another way of saying it is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means that we insist that Christians' belief statement matches up with their mission statement. That what we believe matches up with what we do in how we live, that it's worthy of the one who died for us, that laid his life down for us. He, we are to walk in this manner. We have been called. We have been bought with the price. We have received this. So we are motivated by his grace. That Christian living is connected by faith alone, through Christ alone. It's his empowerment. So our prayer in that pause prayer, whether it's through instruction, prayer, and now empowerment or enablement is that we would, we would understand this gospel. And he gives us three things because now he's just like, okay, did I get it. You beat that horse dead. All right. He then goes on and says, let me give you what it means to walk in a manner. Right? And there's three things that he tells us when it comes to walking in a manner, he says, first, we got to fight for gospel unity. Second, we got to provide gospel. We got to provide gospel clarity. And then finally, we are to pursue collectively gospel maturity, gospel maturity. And so the first thing that he says is that we are to fight for gospel unity, right? And so after he talks about walking in a manner that's worthy, right, he goes in that, you know, and talks about this gospel that we have received in verse two, he says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, 
Bear with one another in love. So he's basically saying that what the way that you were you received Christ, Colossians chapter 2 and 6, therefore walk in him. Don't change it up. The same way you received him, walk in him. Right? And so as he goes, he says, he goes on and he talks about with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. And those are the three things that we see, that we must see. If we really believe that the church is family and we have, God has invited us to be a part of his family, to walk where he walks, to walk in a way that, is, that honors, honors him, where we really recognize that God is our father, Jesus is our elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that one of the things that we have to do is that we have to fight to maintain our identity as family. We have to fight for unity. And so how do we go about doing that? Through humility gentleness, and patience. These are the three virtues that it takes for us to have unity. So let me break them down really quickly for you. The first one is humility. Another way of looking at that is, the, is a word that we, would, we can call sobriety. Look at yourself soberly with sobriety, right? You see, because each and every one of us, I don't need to know everybody's story and everything, but I know two things, that you are both fearfully and wonderfully made. God has placed some uniqueness in you. But then also what I, want, I also realize is that there are some parts of us that we're limited and we're broken, that we wish there were certain things about us that we like, that we would like to have more, and we see other people's having and we wish we had. And, we, and the thing that we do is we diminish the kind of the things that God has placed in us, and then we um, envy the things that play, God has placed in other people. You see, but God has hardwired it in that way. And so what he says is that the way you fight for unity, because I've hardwired it in, in, in this way where I, you need me and I need you. That like I'm incomplete without you and you are incomplete without me. That there is this thing that God does in the church that he's saying that he's unifying. And so that in, even in saying that statement, that some of us is like, I don't need anybody. Because then we've been, we've been growing up with songs and growing up with people saying, like, all I need is you, God. Right? But God is hardwired that, to saying, yes, there's a certain humility, there's a certain sobriety that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that, yes, we need God, but we also need one another. Right? And that's why one of the greatest punishments that can ever be done on this earth is what they call solitary confinement to put you alone in a room because there's something about touch, right? My wife just graduated with her counseling degree and she was studying the idea of infants, that if infants don't get enough touch at the beginning, that they literally shrink up, they go away, right? And it's that this concept, and so this, this idea of sobriety and of understanding that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are also limited. But the other thing he tells us is that not only are we to be sober or have humility, we are also to be gentle. You see, it's when we look vertically at God, we recognize that we're not all that we're cracked up to be. When we stop comparing ourselves to other people, we kind of understand that we're limited, right? But then, it is, but as we understand, because think about it, as you understand and as you just heard that God has poured his love on you and his riches on you and he's given you all these things that you start, you know, feeling about, feeling a little way about yourself. So he says, okay, let me just understand, but the way you, you maintain this, you, you fight for this, you do by being humble, sober, understanding what you bring to the table. 
But then the other way is that you be gentle, where sobriety or humility is about vertical, gentleness is about horizontal, right? Because many of us, you know how we do it, that we either, like when we look at people, you're either above me or below me, and that's going to determine how I'm going to respond and interact with you, right? And then it's in that that he's basically saying is that regardless that you need to understand of whether higher or lower or however you see and view people, treat other people with gentleness. And the word that's in there is a word that we, we talk about is meekness. Meekness is not a very common word um, right now, but this concept of meekness basically means is that someone who has all like such power but doesn't use its power. They know that they can use their power in order to get their way, but they choose not to use their power, right? They choose not to. It's sort of like a horse. Who has ever, who's ridden horses before? Do you guys recognize that horses are a lot stronger than us, right? Does anybody in here think that they're as, as strong as a horse? No. There's nobody in here that thinks that, but horses have a lot more power than us, but they have, they have what this concept of, they have meekness. That when we saddle the horse, it's with the slightest, gentlest of turn, we can make the horse go in one direction or the other direction, right? And there's this concept of meekness. And so he says that as we relate, the way we fight for unity is first, we can't have too high a view of ourselves, but we also don't need to have too low a view of ourselves because, you know, we, you know, we've got to walk with sobriety and humility. But then after we kind of wrestle down that thing, then once we start interacting with human beings, that we treat others with gentleness. We don't force our way to do things. And one of the things that we were talking about this other, the other day, um, we were just talking about like this concept of the best you have, the best you have is an invitation. Right? What do I mean by that? This concept of an invitation is like, even with our children and raising our kids and doing all the things that we start trying to force them to do things and all that, but at the end of the day, all you can do, you can't force them to do anything. And just let them get older and as they become teenagers and adults, you get more and more of that reality. Right? You recognize that. And so he says, understanding that as we relate in that horizontal relationship, walk in meekness. That's the way we fight for unity. Walk with gentleness. But then he says, even if you have a sober view of yourself, even if you are gently treating other human beings, this third one is just as important. You also need to walk with patience. What is patience? Patience, basically, I love the King James Version. He says love. What love is, is the first thing in the list of love. Love is patient. But in the King James Version, is really a proper translation because sometimes patience means like you just come like, you know, it's the, the King James Version. Love is long suffering. You see, here's the thing. You recognize is that whenever we start dealing with human relationships and human things and we're trying to fight for unity, when everybody wants their way now, that I got to have a sober view of myself. I got to treat people with gentleness, but I also got to be willing to suffer with endurance. And it's not, and then I love the, the long suffering is in, in endurance or patience. It's suffering with a positive attitude, right? And so basically what he is doing, he says, listen, I'm asking you to do something that you cannot do. Ultimately, because if we really look at these things, hopefully that each and every one of us is like, Dahadi, I can't do these things. If I'm honest, especially when I'm in prison because of y'all, I'm suffering because of y'all, I'm doing all this. I, I'm, it, 
You're asking for too much. Right? And part of that is a recognition. It's like God's like, yeah, you're right. You can't do it. And this is the reason why God, through his mercy, sends us one who comes alongside us, and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He empowers us. Because if you look at the same list, and if you were to go forward a few chapters or, a few, um, or go backwards in the book of Galatians, we recognize that this list looks the same as the list in Galatians talking about the fruit of the Spirit. These are not works of the flesh. These are not things that you discipline yourself to be so, I'm going to be so, I'm going to be, you know. You don't discipline yourself to be gentle. You don't discipline yourself. You discipline yourself to be in line with Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. And sobriety just comes. You just see yourselves for your strengths and your weakness. Gentleness just happens. Right? Patience is like all of a sudden, not like things that used to bother you just don't bother you anymore. Right? You're just able to endure it's not that the world got any easier. It's just the fact that we are now empowered by the, by the Spirit. And so in that, he tells us, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He tells us to make this effort because he recognizes that even though you don't discipline yourselves to be sober or humble or any of those things, we also know that our flesh, the Spirit is willing, but our flesh is so, so, so weak. It's so weak. Even after this message, you can hear a message, you can be a problem, I'm going to do it, the Lord, this week, this week. And by lunchtime, you're already mad and frustrated, not patient, treating people with a lack of kindness. Already, and it's just kind of like, I just, God, I just, right? And he's like, because he recognizes that there, there are things that are unity killers. They're unity killers. You see, we got to understand this. The goal of Christianity is not about living in moral perfection. See, and I know many people think that that's what the goal. The goal of Christianity is not about living or trying to strive for moral perfection. Jesus already recognized that. He says, listen, I'm dying for the sins, past, present, and future. I'm not just dying for the things that you did in the past and hopefully you can get it right now. He says, past, present, and future. I've died for all of those things. I sit alive as an advocate. I'm constantly sitting before the Father every time you sin. And I'm saying, I, got, I died for that, Jesus. I died for that. I know they messed up, but I died for that. He's like, I'm not looking. The goal of the Christian life is about maintaining, is a fight against isolation or maintaining unity. That's what's supernatural about what God has done, right? That's what's supernatural. You got to recognize what happened in the Garden of Eden when sin entered into the world. What happened? There was separation between God and man. There was separation between man and woman. There was separation, right? And so when he died on the cross, he's like, what sin has done divided, I am now bringing back together. And so, and this is the reason why, and that's what is such beautiful is that whether it's Jew, Gentile, slave, free, even yourself, I'm bringing you back to self. Basically, the gospel, the whole entire Bible is a coming home message. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's saying you have messed up, you are jacked up, but come back home. You have not believed me, you have not trusted me, but come back home. Come home. 
I'm waiting for you with open arms. I'm waiting for you with open arms. But if we don't understand that message, this invitation to come back, we will end up killing the community and killing the unity. And what is that? We see it's privilege that we get misapplied, right? We start thinking that our privilege is for us. Our, it's our pride amplified. I'm better than them. I, like, if everybody can just be like me, right? And this is the thing that I know I struggle with because I used to think, like, it wasn't the gospel that solved it. It was me preaching the gospel, right? Like, it was, like, me doing it, too, that's really going to bring about it. And there was this pride that I have that you can so subtly bring into our faith. It's pride amplified, thinking too highly of ourselves, or thinking too lowly of ourselves, or it's people's grind glorified. Man, that person is killing it over there. I wish we could be like, we need to give them all. Like, we start lifting up people, and then we start saying, man, they are doing such great, and I am doing such poor, and then what we do is we say, forget it, because I'm not worthy. When the gospel has already said, no, you are worthy. I have united you. I have come together, right? The gospel is about understanding that we have a gospel-centered identity, that we are his, and we are unified, that we are in Christ, so we must fight for our unity. We're not fighting for just simply activity, a way of doing things. This churchianity that we have has to stop, right? When we start trying to look and talk and act like other people, right? that God has fearfully and wonderfully made you. He has put you a part of the body and that we are to love one another. And this is, he says, like, as a result of this is that we recognize what the gospel does. Ephesians 4, he says, like, as we fight to maintain this unity, you don't fight to get unity because we are already unified. The gospel has already united us. And he says, and if you don't understand that, let me break it down in Ephesians 4, 4 through 7. He says, listen, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. The gospel has already done its work. And when we make every effort, we are simply about protecting what he has done. And this is the reason why Ephesians chapter 1 and 3 are so critical for us to get and understand. Then once we recognize that and that we live our life in response to that, that when we understand that we have to fight for unity, then we then provide greater gospel clarity. And that's why he says in verse 7, he says, now grace. What does that mean, grace? It's the unmerited favor of God. It's the divine, aid, the, the, the divine enablement of God. It's basically the gospel. Now the gospel was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, he ascended on high, and he took the captives, he took captives captive, and he gave gifts to the people. Basically, what he's saying is, is that God, through Christ, basically went into the enemy's territory, and he plundered all of their riches, and now he's come back. And what he's about to say, that not only did he leave and get all of these riches and gather all of these resources, but then he then comes back. He said, not only did he ascend, but that means he also, in verse 9, he descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is also the one who has ascended far above the heavens to fill all things. And then now in verse 11, he says he is now, he himself gives gifts. He gives gifts. And he gives gifts to 
Who? He gives gifts to everyone. How do I know that? Verse 7, now grace was given to each one of us. There's a word in here that you don't really get and you kind of lose some of its essence. In it, it's a, it's a word that is called charismata. Basically, charismata is where we get the word charismatic, but it's the idea of grace gifts. God went in and he plundered and he has all the resources. He has now come back and instead of keeping these resources to himself, he is now giving these gifts to you and I. He doesn't start, stop at the fact that he has reconciled you to himself. He has also now given us gifts to each and every one of us so that we can con continually keep that going. So he's given us gifts. God gives us gifts for the purpose, for the mutual edification of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That our gifts are not for me, but they are for the we. They are for the we. So he says he's given these gifts to each and every one of us, every man, woman, and child. And that we see, he says, well, the question is, well, what type of gifts do you give us, God? He says that he gives these gifts according to his measure. So to some, he'll give one minor, and to some, he'll give five minors, and to some, he'll give ever um, more minors. But he gives us these gifts, right? And he gives us these charismata gifts, these grace gifts to what they call, growing up, if you grew up in church, what they call the fivefold ministry. Right? Or nowadays they talk about the apest. This concept of these gifts. He says that he has given people, these are gifts, not positions. People within the church, the apostolic gift. Those that, are, that, that have a desire to carry the gospel into new territory. That's what the apostles, that's one who sent. It's like the apostles are the ones who like, I, I want to conquer new land and conquer new territory. I want the gospel to be heard. Then he gives, he says he gives some of the gifts of prophets. These are the people who love to call people back to covenant faithfulness. We've gotten off track. Come back to God. Come back. Come back. That the very essence of the prophets, if you look at Exodus chapter 9, that it's a, it's a calling back. It's a calling back to covenant faithfulness. That he's given us evangelists, and this is people who love to connect with unbelievers, people who don't trust God or believe God. It's like what I like to talk about is the skeptics and the seekers, those people who love to connect with those outside, those that are not in him. He gave some as shepherds. Those are the people who love caring for people. They love to, to nurture and to share and to care for others that are hurting. They, like, when, like if we all like sheep, that the sheep that are wounded and the sheep that are limping, they stay back and they care for them, right? But then he gives us also teachers, and these are the people who love to, for clarity, right? They fight for clarity, right? And in each one of these things that we recognize, whether you're an apostle carrying the gospel or a prophet calling people back to the gospel or an evangelist connecting non-believers to the gospel or shepherds caring in light of the gospel or even teachers clarifying the gospel, what we see that in each one of these that God has given all, why? For the equipping of the saints. Ephesians chapter 4 and 11, what does that mean? You will miss that. You will miss it because that word equipping basically is not the way we think about equipping. The word equipping is the same word that they used in Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, the word ultimately means to mend back. God has given us all different gifts. Remember, 
Ephesians chapter 3.10, he says, the multifaceted wisdom of God is in the church. There's not one person in here that had all the gifts of the Spirit. You guys get that, right? No one in here has all the gifts of the Spirit. So I may be someone who has the gift, like according to this context, that is more apostolic and the gift of teaching. But in that, like I don't have all the gifts. Again, I, we was on the airplanes a couple of times. Like, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I have to discipline myself. Like, remember, if you ever see me on the plane and you see me with headphones on, I, the music may not even be on. I'm just saying, don't bother me. Right? Don't bother me because I don't, I, I'm not naturally the person who goes out and just shares my faith. And I recognize that I'm both fearfully and wonderfully made, but I'm also limited. I'm not all things. And so the problem is, is that when you make it all about you, what you will end up doing is, keep, is create lopsided mini-me's of yourself, where you start valuing all your strengths and demeaning all your weaknesses. And so what has happened is that he's saying that if we want to be the church, the thing that we got to understand is that we got to understand that God's grace gifts that he has given to each and every one of us, how do we both understand that, find that, and cultivate that in a way so that we can display the multifaceted wisdom of God? See, here's the problem. Too many of us, you view church as just simply what we do here on Sundays. The church is not about, uh, it's not about a day of the week. The church is about a gathering. It's called the ecclesia, which he says it's the called out one, that God is gathering a people for the purpose of showing off his beauty. You see, but because we have made the church only about the last two gifts, shepherding and teaching, we have made the church that it's all about, I go to church just to be cared for and just to get things clarified. We said, see, the problem is, is that we're missing a lot of part of the church. The church is not a hospital that is all about this, taking on the sick. It's a missions organization as well. And so it's like, this is where, so some of us have this, this idea, it's like, I just got this passion to reach my neighbor, and I just like, I don't know what to do with it. And I don't find myself in the church, and, and some of you are just like, man, I, I feel this burden and this desire to, to, to be about God's business, but like, I don't, this, like, I don't wanna just only serve on Sundays. Like, what does this look like Monday through Saturday? You see, and what, when, what he's saying is that the multifaceted wisdom is that God is what he's doing is that he is mending back what has been divided by sin. Why? Because of sin, we have not been sober, sobriety, having a, a humble view of ourselves. Because of sin, we've not been gentle with one another. Because of sin, we have not endured with one another. Instead, we become prideful, we've misapplied our, our, our privileges, and all of the things, and we, what we see as the result is the fractured church. And that's what we have today in America. That's what we have, is a fractured church. So what happens? All the teachers, they go teach in seminary. All the shepherds, they come to the church and they pastor. All the evangelists, they go to a campus crusade or they go on their jobs and in their workplace. All the, all the, the prophets, um, they just are just mad and frustrated and they're just lonely by themselves, <laughs> right? There are, you know, and then all the apostles, they go to church planning organizations. We got to start new movements or missions organizations. And so everybody's just scattered. 
And we wonder why we feel so incomplete oftentimes is because we're not displaying the manifold wisdom. We're not trying to clarify the gospel. But just think about a church that displayed both the, the missional side of things, but also the caring side of things, but also the shepherding side and the, the clarifying and like all of those things in a time where we can all mutually come together. And not just talking about here on stage, but we're talking about even in our city groups, in our one anothering. Just think about a church that's unleashed that is called for each and every one of us to, to say a place that I belong and I matter. Think about that church. That's the church. That is what Christ died for. It's not about a Sunday. It's about a people who come together, who recognize that it's not like family, but it is family. We are family. In which Paul is saying, do you get this? I've instructed you. I'm praying for you. And now I'm exhorting you. Do you understand it? Fight for this unity because we are so fractured. So when he says that I have given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, I'm doing this to mend you back because you're so fractured. We're so fractured. And instead of having a sober view and understanding that you are not God's gift to the church, we attack others if they don't believe like us, think like us. And this is one of the reasons why in Blueprint, as a discipline, not because we're bigger and bad, because as a discipline, we do team teaching. Because when I get up, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to try. I'm, I'm primarily apostolic in teaching, and so I'm primarily going to always get you to go, and let's go, let's conquer a hill, let's take on new territory. That's just my natural thing, and Pastor Carly is more of a shepherding. He's going to care for you. It doesn't mean he doesn't do apostolic things, it doesn't mean I don't do shepherding things, but we have these certain gifts that we exhort, that we come. You see, if I was the only one teaching, we would be a very tired church. Right? But if, again, if Pastor Carly was the only one teaching, we would be a church that feel cared for, but we wouldn't be getting much done. And again, I'm making caricatures of both of us because obviously he cares about mission and I care about people. But, the, but you see, the thing is that we are uniquely, have this unique capacity and so when Paul is saying that I'm giving these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, so that not so that we can kind of show and poke up as like, oh, we need apostles more, we need this more. No, it's so that we can recognize that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are also incomplete. We are also incomplete, and we need one another. And God is looking, not just for pastors, because he says he's given these gifts to everyone. He's given these gifts, every one of us. And so one of the things I want to exhort you to, I've, I lead an organization called My Boulevard, and actually on Tuesday. On Tuesday, um, we are going, I'm gonna be doing a, like a, a webinar, and I just wanna invite you guys to this webinar. It's called Knowing Your Story. Knowing Your Story, and we'll send out an email to kind of remind you about this, but really it's just, and knowing your story is just understanding how God has made you. And it's gonna be a fun time, we're gonna be using different things like Enneagram and all these different things of just like different tools to kind of understand who am I so that we can understand what God has called me to do. The better you understand your story, the more that you can provide gospel clarity. And so when people come, they recognize and see the goal of it is, is that I want each and every one of you to have the same level of importance that if someone did not get up and preach on Sunday, you would be like, what's going on? Like if all Rachel did and the team, they came and they sung and they was like, all right, you guys, we'll see you later. You would feel cheated right? Because there was a gift that was not utilized. That's the same way that I want you to feel if you don't come to church, that there's something missing. 
If you're not in a small group or a city group, there's something missing. You're not bringing you. That's why the Bible says don't forsake the assembling. But you know what? He doesn't say don't forsake the assembling as a way to guilt you. He says don't forsake the gathering because you are there to spur one another on, to love and good deeds. You are there to irritate you. So every single time I'm getting up, I'm going to irritate you a little bit, like get off the bed, turn off Netflix, and get out to the streets. To some degree, I want to irritate you, to do a little more. But sometimes that we need to be irritated to stop. There's wounded sheep. And I want to go, but no, daddy, stop. Take care of the sheep. I need those people to irritate me. That's what the Bible says, spur, irritate one another. See, the problem is that too many of us define God's will by the path of least resistance. We don't like to be irritated. And as soon as we are challenged or we, are, we begin to irritate one another, what ends up happening is I, I, I'm not growing, I'm not learning, I'm not. I don't want to be irritated. I want to be around people who look like me, talk like me, act like me, who have the same giftings as me. I want to go with all the other apostles who just cheer me on that see what I'm doing and say, yay, go. I want to be around the other teachers that love to clarify. We get to sit and debate and talk about truths, gospel truths and gospel realities. And I just want to be around the people who just care. Right? And what we do is that we go into our things. Why does he go through all this? And I'm ending, I'm over, I'm ending my time. Me just end it. I'm just going to end this thing because I'm over. God tells us that we need to fight for clarity. He tells us that we need to fight for, for unity, fight for clarity. The reason why we fight for clarity is when we all operate as one, he gives us. And the reason why is that we do all those things is that we want to pursue collective maturity. You see, there's about 100 so people here today. And in that, God has fearfully and wonderfully made each and every one of us. And he's made us in different ways and unique ways and that there's some gifts that you have that I don't have and there's some gifts that I have that you don't have. And, you know, and our goal is that we can come together and literally irritate one another for the purpose of equipping the saints so that we can actually do the ministry that we have, right? The things that we got to understand is that in verses 12 through 16, he says that the goal is that we build up the body of Christ. And he doesn't say until Dahadi reaches maturity. He says until we all reach what? Unity. Unity in the faith. You see, we spend too much time thinking that maturity is just simply about perfection, moral perfection. Stop doing this. Stop smoking. Stop having sex outside. Stop, stop, stop. And we think that it's about that. The only reason why those things are lifted up primarily is because those things, God knows that those things brings about division. It's about considering yourself more important than others. It's when you start thinking selfishly, you act selfishly. It says until we all reach unity in what? In our actions? No, it says unity in the faith. Because that's the only way that we can please him. So even in our proactivity, God is calling us to fight for unity, provide gospel clarity, and fight for collective maturity. Why? Because the goal is that we will be unified. We will be one. One. Growing in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son. Growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness then we will no longer 
be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind or teaching, by every cunning and cleverness and techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head. Christ is the only person who had all the gifts of the Spirit. Colossians 1 says the fullness of God dwelled in Christ. For the rest of us, we only get parts of the gifts. God has hardwired us to have to need one another. And so hypothetically, it is impossible for you to be a mature believer in Christ outside of a local we. That's basically what Paul is saying. Because how can you be unified with just yourself? Too many of us think it's just about stop doing things, but it's about being unified because what sin has done, it has broken us. It has divided us. And what God has done is that he is uniting us. He is equipping, or a better word, he is mending back what sin has torn apart. That's what this fight is about. The Christian life is not a fight against it's not a fight for perfection, but it's a fight against isolation. And what sin will do, it will force you to go, go silent. It will force you to be silent. It will force you to try to hide. And God was like, I died for that. Come back. I died for that. And until we start recognizing that it's not about me being healthy, but it's also about you being healthy, that we will start treating one another with the same importance that we all have. Like if I see you struggling, that means I struggle. If there's cancer in the, in the body, there's, I have cancer. There's no such thing as that, oh, there's cancer in the shoulder, but I don't have cancer because I'm a knee. No, cancer is coming for us all and it's deadly and we got to eliminate it. And Christ has already shown us how to do that. And it's a collective unity in order for us to get this gospel maturity. And so, what that means and what we're going to do is that we're going to take some time right now. We're going to kind of commend this moment with what we do every first Sunday, you know, talking about communion. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.